Last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Now, we know that sometime on December 23rd, 2000, the cadaver note was processed at the Marina Del Rey Postal Annex. You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. I would describe Morris Black as being a cantankerous in the extreme. Was there ever a moment when he said, hey, for the last couple of weeks, you've been writing me notes and wearing a wig. Now you're not writing notes. When you we can became speak. friendlier as time went on in the following months, he asked about how come you, you know, we're here, we're, we're, why did you rent the apartment as Dorothy Siner and, and like that. And I told him I wanted to disappear and hide. He said, yeah, I went through that. Now, during the summer of 2001, Morris became aware that Durst was from New York and that he had significant financial resources. He was in the apartment. I could hear the TV from outside. Opened up the door, walk into the apartment. He's sitting at the table. Morris, get out of here, period. I'm leaving, get out. I don't ever want to see you again. He takes the gun out from under whatever the yellow thing is on the, on the table. I grab him and the gun, and we fall down in the kitchen. The gun goes off and shoots him in the side of the face. And so suddenly, he, that was it. He was dead. Yes, he was dead. And then, now you're in your apartment, in Galveston, yeah, Texas. He's dead. And I, this... I, I sat down on the bed for hours trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And then what, through, what went through your mind? I mean, I could just picture myself going to the police precinct to report this. My name is Robert Durst. Um, I rented this $300 a month apartment disguised as a woman named Dorothy Siner. Um, my, my neighbor is lying on the kitchen floor with a bullet wound in his face. He's dead. Uh, the bullet came from my gun. Oh, and this is an accident. Oh, and by the way, I'm a rich guy from New York, and my first wife disappeared, and um, I was never charged, but there was lots of speculation that I did it. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's midday on the second day of opening statements. After the jurors return from their lunch break, Judge Wyndham takes time to address the emerging public health crisis. We know about the coronavirus being a, a problem, sort of a, a threat that's out there, and I want to make sure for your own sake, but also for the sake of our process, I mean, I'd like you to all stay healthy. The date is March 5th, 2020. And in the context of a major murder trial, even with the coughing and throat clearing audible in Department 81, 
COVID-19 still seems more like an inconvenience than a true danger. As Wyndham gives his speech about the importance of hand washing, his words have the tenor of an elementary school teacher. Wash your hands briskly and often with soap and water for 20 seconds, especially after going to the bathroom, before eating and after blowing your nose, coughing or sneezing. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue and then throw the tissue in the trash and immediately wash your hands. Wyndham's instructions are received with polite nods and perhaps a few eye rolls. When Deputy DA John Lewin takes the podium, he grabs the juror's attention by reasserting that Robert Durst murdered Morris Black, shooting him in the head in his Galveston apartment. But as the blood pooled on the matted carpet and the body turned cold, Durst realized he had a problem. He couldn't lift the corpse. According to Robert, he briefly considered dragging the body outside in a sleeping bag, but decided that that would look too ridiculous. So he came up with a different solution, a bloodier one. Now, as you listen to Mr. Durst's voice, the evidence is going to demonstrate, as he's describing this, it's as if he's constructing a shed or building something in the backyard. You don't hear any remorse. You don't hear any sorrow. You don't hear any pain. You don't hear any regret. Lewin plays a clip from an interview with Durst for the 2015 HBO documentary series, The Jinx. Um, and I went back and, and I realized I couldn't lift it. I couldn't drag it out. I was going to have to dis dismember it. And then I went to Chalmers Hardware Store. Anyway, I went and bought a bow saw and I bought a bunch of garbage bags and stuff like that and went back to, to, to the house. And uh, I'm sure I got more stoned and more drunk and I dismembered the corpse, primarily with the ax, but some with the bow saw and I think another saw that Morris Black had. Took the body parts and put any, everything else there that was bloody, whatever it was, that I ended up cleaning up the place with, put them in the garbage bags. And that, that night, I put the garbage bags in, in my SUV and drove to find some place to dump the garbage bags. It immediately became obvious to me, I'd dump them in the water, they'll sink, nobody will have seen them, the garbage bags are heavy. And that's what I did. As the video plays on the court TV screen, the expression of several jurors contort. Some grimace in disgust, others cringe, a few stare in wide-eyed shock. Lewin cuts to the heart of their discomfort, Durst's apparent lack of humanity. The end is going to demonstrate that when Mr. Durst is talking about Morris Black, he doesn't refer to him as Morris. He, I couldn't lift it. I couldn't drag it out. I was going to have to dismember it. The other's going to show that Morris Black ceased being even a person to Bob Durst. <clears throat> Mr. Durst was also um, asked about the manner in which he had dismembered the body. And he denied that it took any special experience. He, the way that he describes it, though, as you listen to him, um, he's very technical. You listen to what he has to say. John Lewin plays audio from his interview with Durst in New Orleans. Somebody knew how to cut the joints. You see, I don't know that. Subsequently, I've been told um, that a surgeon would, would cut up a body the same way you, you yeah. do a chicken. 
you go into the joint and, and you cut around the joint to get rid of all the ligaments and then the thing comes out. You're not going to go and try to cut through the goddamn bone like right. I did, which was hard. Um, well, you, you did, a, you did a, a pretty good job. Would you agree, Bob, that somebody who could dismember somebody like that, you can understand why we would suspect you of having yeah, killed Yeah, that's you. what Kathy, Mother, and what Gilberti, and I'm sure the other ones think. I did to Kathy. Now, the other's going to demonstrate that I couldn't get out even my sentence. All that I said was, why we, we would suspect you being killed. And Mr. Durst finished the sentence for me. He brought up Kathy. He brought up the dismemberment. He brought up people's suspicions. Now, during the 2010 interviews with Jarecki and Smerling, uh, they also discussed what Bob Durst had done with Morris and body parts. And he explains exactly what happened. Took the body parts and put any, everything else there that was bloody, whatever it was, that I ended up cleaning up the place with, put them in the garbage bags. And that, that night, I put the garbage bags in, in my SUV and drove to find some place to dump the garbage bags. It immediately became obvious to me, I'd dump them in the water, it'll sink, nobody will have seen them, the garbage bags are heavy, and that's what I did. So you drove to Galveston Bay? Yeah, I drove around for a while, because I had to get to some place on the bay where I could put the car near a, a, a um, pier or whatever you want to call it. I couldn't take it that way. I couldn't go to the beach and leave the, the car at the seawall and walk down the beach with my garbage bags. So you basically just decided you were going to I figured it was deep. I'm going to drop it. It's going to sink. <clears throat> Who cares where the tide is going? It's underwater. Nobody's going to see it. Right. But the bags didn't sink? No. What happened? They floated. Because of the air that was in the bags? Well, seemingly body parts flow. Just because it's heavy doesn't mean it's going to sink. Durst dumped the garbage bags in the Galveston Bay at midnight. The next morning, a young boy fishing with his father found a human torso floating in the bay and alerted local law enforcement. When Durst returned to the scene, he saw police activities and the garbage bags floating in the water. Lewin tells the jury that the evidence will show that Durst panicked. He returned to the apartment, grabbed his marijuana from the freezer, and fled to New Orleans, where he intended to live in his other apartment as Diane Wynn. But Durst had no idea how quickly investigators would be on his trail. After divers pulled the bags to shore, they examined the contents. Inside the garbage bags, they discovered body parts, a torso and limbs, but no head. They also found garbage and a newspaper. That newspaper had an address. A few after, uh, hours after Durst fled, investigators, they've now made the connection to the address, and they go over there. They respond to the location. They subsequently obtained a warrant, and they searched both apartment units. Now, although Bob Durst had cleaned both apartments, there was still some evidence of blood. <laughs> they later searched the contents of the 
garbage cans that were behind the residence. So these are going to be like the garbage cans that go for not just Bob Durst, but everybody in that apartment. What do they find? They find a Ruger 22 millimeter target pistol. Now, that's going to turn out to be the murder weapon. Bob Durst is going to deny ever having seen the gun, but there's no blood found anywhere on that weapon. Now, investigators later discovered that Morris's neighbor, Dorothy Siner, was in fact Robert Durst. And they soon realized that it, that it was Durst who had killed and dismembered Morris. According to the BD story, an often unreliable but sometimes incriminating chronicle of his own activities written by Durst as he awaited trial in Houston, Durst spent October 2nd through October 7th in New Orleans disguised as Diane Wynn but he returned to Galveston on October 8th, where he stayed at a Holiday Inn because the front desk didn't require an ID. On October 9th, Durst went to pick up a glasses prescription, and the police were waiting for him. Oh, I was arrested in Galveston. I spent one night in prison in Galveston, and I, I had been told by the, the detective that uh, you've been charged with murder, Bail has been set at $250,000. And I didn't think that when you were charged with murder, I mean, I know nothing, but you, you, you can't give someone charged with murder or bail because they're going to run away, of course, went through my mind. And I said, it's $250,000? And he says, yes, it's $250,000 cash. So I said, how do I go about doing this? He looks at me and says, do you have $250,000? I said, well, not on me. The evidence is going to show that the Galveston police knew who Bob Durst was. They knew what his name was. They did not know who Bob Durst was and that he was a very, very wealthy man. Mr. Durst expanded on this again uh, in the interviews with Mr. Jarecki and made very clear that, you know what? If once he was getting bail, he was never coming back. But was your intention when you put up the $250,000 to run away? Oh, goodbye $250,000, goodbye jail, I'm, I'm out. Did you think to yourself at that point, well, sometimes these things, you know, they don't, they, they don't, it's not like a quid pro quo. If you give them the $250,000, you forego the jail time. Sometimes you have to do both, um, you know. This is bail. You bail yourself out, you're out but you have to come back at some point. Yes, yes, you sign a bunch of papers about coming back on a certain time. I didn't care what I signed, I wanted to get out. Forget the $250,000. Did you, uh, when you signed the, the, the papers and things, were you thinking to yourself, I'm going to leave and I'm not gonna come back unless there's a... Yes, yes, show me where to sign, where do I sign? But your intention at that point was simply to get lost, to go away. It wasn't. Away. I'm not going to stay here and face murder charges and an unwinnable murder case like the. I mean, especially they 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 they've got me on my neighbor being shot in the face with my gun in my apartment, which I rented, uh, disguised as a woman, and I dismembered the guy's corpse. Who's going to acquit me? I'm obviously guilty in front of the, the, in the eyes of the world. I'm guilty. I ain't coming back here. I'm never going to see this place again.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The morning after his arrest, Mr. Durst posted bail, posted $250,000 as he discussed. And as he told you in the last clip, um, he skipped bail. Uh, now, the evidence is going to show that Mr. Durst was so unaffected by allegedly unintentionally killing his friend or killing him in self-defense that he literally takes Morris Black's driver's license and he uses it to rent a car in Mobile, Alabama. After skipping bail, Durst checked into numerous hotels using multiple aliases, including the names Emilio McNoni and Maury Block, both individuals from Durst's past. In an attempt to disguise himself, Durst also shaved his eyebrows and head, giving him an unsettlingly smooth appearance. The charade worked. Durst was in hiding for more than six weeks, but then he broke the law again. Now, on November 30th, 2001, after 45 days on the run, Durst was arrested in Pennsylvania at a Wegmans, which is a kind of like, I guess, maybe the Bristol Farms of Pennsylvania, or maybe the Whole Foods of Pennsylvania, um, for shoplifting a chicken sandwich, a newspaper, and Band-Aids. Now, at the time, Durst had about $500 in his pocket. He had $37,000 inside his car in the parking lot. In Durst's rental car, police would eventually find two loaded handguns, additional ammunition, marijuana, and Morris Black's driver's license. Inside the car, investigators made another startling discovery. They found this Mead five-star notebook. Inside that spiral notebook was this notepad from a hotel that Durst had stayed at in Danbury, Connecticut. Written on that notepad was the address, workplace, and home phone number of Gilberta Najami. Inside the car, officers also found an atlas for Fairfield County, Connecticut, the county where Najami lived. Gilberta was a close friend of Kathy's. It was Gilberta's party that Kathy attended on the day she was allegedly murdered. Since her friend's disappearance, Gilberta had been extremely vocal with the press. She said she had a strong suspicion that Robert killed Kathy. Long after the media frenzy died down, Gilberta refused to let go of the case. She consulted psychics and hired private investigators. Though nothing came of her inquiry, Lewin implies that Gilberta's fervent pursuit of justice put her on his hit list. Car contained some other information as well. They found a note that was directed at Durst's brother Douglas. A page of spiral-bound notebook appears on screen. On the college-ruled lines are a few sentences, scribbled in Durst's haphazard cursive handwriting. It says, what D.D. is doing to me puts me in the same place as what Kathy did to me. That's D.D. as in Douglas Durst. Lewin guides the jury to read between the lines. 
Is Durst implying that Kathy put him in a position that led him to kill her? Is it possible Durst was planning on killing his brother? Lewin goes on to tell the jury that after Durst's arrest, officers discovered his outstanding warrant and he was taken to a Pennsylvania jail to await extradition back to Texas. During this time, Durst made a jail call to his wife, Deborah, whom he'd married just before Susan Berman was murdered. On the call, they discussed Durst's brother, Douglas. Lewin plays that call for the jury. We were talking, you were telling me about what your life has been like and what you were thinking. Yeah, my, 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 my Don't plan. Say it. Yeah. Okay. I'm definitely not going to say okay, it. Okay, but you told me what your plans were. Well, and I told you that I knew, I had a feeling, I suspected. Remember? Yeah, I certainly screwed it up, didn't I? Well, never mind that. But if I suspected, he too suspected. I, 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 I think I left this out. Did I tell you that I went to his Katona house while I was in Danbury? Uh, I think I read that you did, but I didn't. I don't remember if you told me. This is Mr. Durr's talking to his wife. The evidence is going to demonstrate that the person they're talking about is Douglas Durr's. The plan they're talking about is Bob Durr's killing him. One week later, Durst made another call to Deborah. On the call, he referred to someone as BM. Initials that Lewin says the evidence will show is another code moniker for Douglas Durst. During the conversation, Robert also used the word Igor. Durst named several of his dogs Igor, many of which died in a short period of time after Durst got them. In 2015, Douglas Durst told the New York Times his theory about the dog's deaths. Quote, Before the disappearance of my sister-in-law, Bob had a series of Alaskan Malamutes, which is like a husky. He had seven of them, and they all died, mysteriously, of different things within six months of his owning them. All of them named Igor. We don't know how they died and what happened to their bodies. In retrospect, I now believe he was practicing killing and disposing his wife with those dogs. End quote. Lewin seems to dispute the theory that Durst killed his dogs, accepting Durst's explanation that the dogs either died of natural causes or were euthanized because of illness. But he implies that when Durst says egoring, it's code for making something dead. He plays the jail call between Bob and his wife Deborah for the jury. From way back when, I was planning on egoring DM. Yes, I know. So that was a big problem with getting married, because I was afraid that what happened to me just now, you know, would, would, would happen back then. Don't you think he knew how you felt? I, I don't think he knew what, what I, you know, Igor. Yeah, I think he did, because I knew, so I think he knew. Oh, no, he, he, he don't know me like that. Maybe, maybe now. He suspects that maybe or something. I, I, I don't know. This is just so... I, I suspect he doesn't even suspect now. Lewin tells the jury that years later, when Durst was interviewed over the phone by the filmmakers Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, he completely denied this conversation with his wife, Deborah Chariton. Actually, I have a dog question, and I think this... I don't know if this was came from Pizer or the tapes or whatever, but somebody said that you, when you and Deborah were talking on the phone that you guys had a code when you were in prison and that she talked about, or you talked about, um, egoring your brother. 
well, you know, I was thinking about Igoring him, and then at another time you said something about Sam, you know, I was going to Sam that person and Igor that person. So I, I, I just wanted to ask you that. I don't know that it's... I was thinking I was going to Igor my brother or, or, or Sammy my brother, and I, 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 I never knew anything about that. On March 27, 2002, Robert Durst returned to Galveston to stand trial for Morris Black's murder. Years later, Durst was asked about his attorney's strategy for that trial during an interview for the Jinx. Mr. Durst is going to be asked, in essence, what was the plan for how he was going to deal with the charges in Galveston? This was his response. Remember, this is taking place in 2010. This is seven years after the trial and after he's been acquitted. What was the basic idea? Of, of how you were going to get off in Galveston, if, if, you, if you were. How I was going to get acquitted, what my story was going to be, what my case was going to be. The best case was immediately, I mean, the other lawyers who came to see me, Mike Kennedy was a well-known New York criminal lawyer. He was sure I had to plead temporary insanity. My sister was still there for me. She was standing up for me and, um, she brought in Mike Ramsey, who brought in Dick DeGaron. Mike Ramsey was a real pain. He was sure I had to plead temporary insanity. Uh, they're never going to believe your story. You have to be insane. Only insane people dismember corpses anyway. DeGaron and Mike Ramsey knew what, what Mike Kennedy did not know, because Mike Kennedy is a New York lawyer. They were Texas lawyers. That self-defense is a very viable plea in the state of Texas. In the state of Texas, you find somebody in your house who's not supposed to be there. There's, there's not much you cannot do to them. Most other states, what you're obligated to do is to call the police, do something else. You're obligated to leave. Texas, you're not obligated to leave. You, you can handle it more or less as you see fit. Obviously, you're not supposed to kill them. But you can. The dismemberment has nothing, should not have anything to do. The judge should separate the dismemberment from the death of Morris Black because the dismemberment did not cause his death. And that was them listening to my story. The indictment says that he was dismembered, he was killed by being dismembered. And I said, I did not kill him by dismembering him. I dismembered him after he was dead. They, they, they put in front of the jury about a thousand times was there anything that Robert Durst could do after finding Morris Black dead to, to, to prevent his death or to change the manner in which he died? And they, they brought up about a zillion examples. Can you unstrike a match? No. Can you unring a bell? No. If somebody's dead, is there anything you can do to prevent him from dying? No. They said, that will be the basis of our case, but you're going to have to testify you're going to have to testify truthfully. You're going to have to do real, real, real good. Uh, this will be very, very unpleasant. It's a very difficult case. But Mr. Durst, you're, you're not definitely going to lose like they say in the newspaper. Opening statements in the murder trial began on September 22nd, 2003. As was its right in that trial, and again, a defendant has a right to testify, and they have an absolute right not to testify. Mr. Durst in this trial elected to testify. He was asked, again, seven years later approximately, whether he had been truthful 
with the jury in Galveston. This is what he said. At the time, you, you, you certainly have said to me that you did lie to the jury in Galveston in some way, that your lawyer encouraged you to. And well, I think that's... He didn't encourage me to. Uh, we went over the oath. And from day one, the oath says, you uh, promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Just make sure that the ones at the end tell the truth, nothing but the truth, that you do exactly that. In terms of the whole truth, if you want to leave out something that does not, uh, which makes you look bad if you tell it, but does not turn into an untruth, well, try it. Try it. If there's something so terrible that you don't want to say it or you think could be construed the wrong way, then just leave it out. Now the evidence will show that during his testimony, Bob Durst lied. He lied about Kath's disappearance, he lied about his whereabouts at the time of Susan's murder, and he lied about the true facts concerning Morris's killing and the dismemberment. Many of these lies will be disproven during our case. According to the prosecution, one such lie is the story that Durst told to explain why he purchased the firearm, which would eventually become the alleged murder weapon. During the Galveston trial, Durst explained that one day Morris asked him to go target shooting with him. So Durst testified that the first time, uh, talked about the first time he and Morris allegedly went shooting. He says that Morris shot rapid fire without aiming between shots. Dirk said that he yelled when this happened, stop, stop, stop. Dirk said the gun jammed at that point. Dirk said as he was yelling, Morris turned towards him, pointing the loaded 9mm directly at him. Dirk says he yelled, point it down, point it. In response to Morris's reckless handling of Durst's gun, Robert testified that he decided to buy Morris a 22 caliber target pistol. Lewin implies that this purchase didn't make sense, at least not for the reason Durst stated. The target pistol had a lighter trigger pull than Durst's 9mm, which made it more accurate but also easier to fire by accident, making it a poor choice for someone who was careless around firearms. Lewin tells the jury that there's a different reason why Durst may have selected a target pistol. Let's assume you wanted to shoot somebody in a house and you want it to be quiet. Nine millimeters is going to be much louder. 22 could sometimes be mistaken as backfire from a car. Now, Durst also testified about an incident that allegedly happened on September 17, 2001. We had gone shooting, I had come back, I had gone to the bathroom, he was in the living room, and he shot the pistol in the house. And I, you know, oh, he shot the pistol at the eviction letter that he had put up on the wall, taped or thumbtacked or whatever up on the wall. And I went out of the bathroom. At first I was sure it was outside. And then I heard he did it again. And then I was sure it was inside, and I went out, and he's got the gun in his hand. I said, put the gun down and get out of here. Now, at his Galveston murder trial, Durst was very clear that he demanded his apartment key back from Morris 
during this incident on September 17th. Lewin reads a segment of Durst's testimony from the Galveston trial. I think I would sort of come up at some time. It just seemed so obvious to me. You can't shoot a gun in the apartment. He was 20 feet away from where I was. So what did you do? I said, I want you to give me back the key and I want you to get out of here. So did he give you the key? He took the key off his chain and he took the eviction notice. John Lewin points out that when the eviction letter was recovered and introduced as evidence in Galveston, the paper was intact. No bullet holes. He also tells the jury that Durst later changed his story about the key during the New Orleans interview. Now, one of the things interesting, I got to know, you're a very private person. Do you agree? No, I don't have close friends. Yeah. And so I knew the Galveston story wasn't true. When, as soon as I heard you say that you gave Morris a key to the place, I knew right there you would never give him a key. I never give anybody a key yeah, unless yeah. they were, you know. Mr. Harris conceded when I interviewed him that, you know what, yeah, I don't give anybody a key. Except for he had said that previously he had given Morris a key so that when he was gone, Morris could watch the TV in his house. Now, the evidence is going to show that Bob Durst is not the kind of person who's especially cognizant or considerate of other people. And as he related in that statement you just heard, I don't give a key to anybody. Now, the physical evidence from the crime scene will also impeach Durst's version of the shooting. Investigators removed the kitchen drywall which preserved the blood spatter on the kitchen wall, where Durst claimed that the gun was fired. During the Galveston trial, the defense produced a computerized animation of the shooting, which Durst testified was an exact replication of his altercation with Morris Black. Lewin plays the animation for the jury. The figures are in 3D, angular like action figures. It's reminiscent of a computer game from the early 2000s. In the video, Black points a target pistol at Durst, who attempts to wrestle the gun away from him. The gun accidentally fires, and Black is shot in the head. Lewin informs the jury that they will hear testimony from a crime scene reconstruction expert who will tell them that the blood spatter on the walls is inconsistent with the animation and Durst's prior statements. In addition, Lewin explains that Durst falsely presented himself as having Asperger's. As part of his defense, Durst testified that he had psychiatric psychological analysis and testing which showed Asperger's syndrome, which is um, now it's, it's, it's on the autism spectrum. However, during the March 15, 2000 interview, I addressed this issue about this alleged autism Asperger's. And this is what Mr. Durst said. Yeah, another thing that I've got to say, the whole Asperger's thing. I never thought that amounted to anything. That was the psychiatrist coming up with an explanation, <laughs> and it was never necessary at the trial. We didn't need the psychiatrist. Right. Bob, you agree, that was a load of bullshit by the shrink. Yeah. Mr. Durst conceded during the interview that the Asperger's thing was bullshit. Now, at the conclusion of his highly publicized trial in Galveston, Mr. Durst was found not guilty. He was acquitted. He was not found innocent. Juries don't find innocence, not criminal juries. The jury found that the prosecution, with the evidence they had presented, had not proven their case a murder beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Mr. Durst subsequently pled guilty to tampering with evidence. Um, that's kind of a nice way of saying dismembering Morris's body and throwing him into trash in the ocean. Uh, and bond jumping. Robert Durst was acquitted of murder. After pleading guilty to jumping his bail bond and to tampering with evidence, he was sentenced to five years in prison. That was in 2004, but he was given credit for time served and released on parole in 2005. That could have been the end of it. But Lewin tells the jury, Robert Durst loves to talk about Robert Durst. In 2010, Durst obtained the screenplay for All Good Things, a film which was based on his life. He enjoyed the script and decided he wanted to talk to the director, Andrew Jarecki, about interviewing him as a kind of commentary for the film. Those interviews happened. They were included as extras for the DVD of All Good Things and became the basis for the HBO series, The Jinx, the documentary that confronted Durst about his past and caught his alleged confession on tape. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On the next episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Anyway, so I, I, I have an idea. I have no idea if it makes any sense, but, but you're the one to talk to about. Sure. That would it make sense there to be an interview with me related to what's in the movie? After three days of interviews in December of 2010, Mark Smerling and Andrew Jarecki continued their research in hopes that they could construct a documentary out of the footage. In August of 2011, the filmmakers interviewed Susan's son, Sarah, and encouraged him to look through old files and personal effects. So he goes back through and he finds the letter. Now upon doing so, he makes a startling discovery. A year and a half before the murders, Durst sent Susan a letter. This is the letter that is referred to as the Sarah letter and the Sarah envelope. So I want to I want to show you the envelope that that letter came in. Did you read me the address on this envelope? Robert Durst, floor twenty four sixty seven Wall Street, New York, UR one zero 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 five. And who you sent it to? Susan Berman, fifteen twenty seven Benedict Canyon, Beverly Hills, California. Beverly spelled wrong. California nine zero two one. So obviously I want to ask you about the cadaver note, the famous cadaver note. Can you read me the spelling of Beverly Hills? Hills. Now toward the conclusion of the interview, while Durst was still wearing his microphone, he went to use the bathroom. Kill them all, of course. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Terracone. 
The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Taracone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.